we thank you for this evening together, and I, I just want to lift up the firefighters to you. We thank you, Lord, for them, their skill, training, and the skill of these, um, uh, these pilots, of these planes that are bombing the, the, the wildfire. We pray, Lord, for their safety. We ask, God, that, that you would really make that uh, retardant and all the stuff they do work fantastic, Lord, and knock these fires down and protect life and people, we pray. I thank you for our Bible study tonight, Lord. You're so good to us. You're so faithful. And uh, as we cover these chapters tonight, I just pray that you would reveal the truth of your word to us. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. I, we have announcements really quick. Men of the Master is uh, this Saturday, guys, 8 o'clock. And um, the women's retreat signups continue. Harvest Crusade's coming up. You can be a part of that. The table is filled with things for you to pick up and, and uh, connect and be a part of that. And tonight, I guess well, there's homemade cookies, it looks like, on the list tonight. So a fellowship after service tonight. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21. I'm going to really rip through this intro because we have a lot of chapters to cover um, we're going to look at some chapters rather than just verses because we're in a new section of Exodus tonight. We just finished chapter 20, and chapter 20, as you know, is the beginning of the Mosaic Law. These are the Ten Commandments. We studied them in depth. These next chapters, 21, 2, and 3, they're really kind of um, the application of those Ten Commandments, where the Ten Commandments are kind of broad and, and uh, specific um, now we get kind of the, the, the minutiae, the generalities of those commands. And the reason is, again, remember that the children of Israel have been delivered from the 400 years in Egypt. They've been under the control of a pagan society. They're coming out of that pagan society. And as they do, they're going to be led, God's going to lead them where? To the promised land called Canaan. They're going to go to Canaan. And all around Canaan, ancient Mesopotamia, there are many different nations, and they have their own laws. Egypt had its own laws. In other words, how they treat one another, how they inflict capital punishment, all the different laws and idols that were in these other, governing these other nations. Now, God has just raised his people. He's delivered them from Egypt and their bondage, and he's going to give them new laws. He's going to describe the way he wants them to live, and it's really different than the nations around, as you're going to see, God's very specific about even the slavery laws. We're going to look at those tonight. They, they begin this section. Um, but the laws about slavery, where other societies would just kill the slaves, God puts value on human life. He always has. And so the laws that govern the children of Israel are different than the laws of Mesopotamia, Sumeria, Egypt, Babylon, all the different surrounding nations. That's the key that helps us understand this section. And this section that we're in is really called the Book of the Covenant. When you, when you break the Torah down, the first five books of the Bible, the books that were studied in depth by the Jews, this section here, these three chapters were called the Book of the Covenants. Again, the practical outworking of the ten commandments. So that's really the important part that you need to understand. These laws were God's people, and they, they trumped or, or canceled out the laws of the neighboring 
nations around the children of Israel. So that's really why I've decided to take these three chapters together. And rather than look at each one individually and make a big deal about them, we've already gotten the, the general, right? We've got the 10. So we're just going to look, kind of take hunks of this three chapters. We're going to move fairly quickly as we look at these together. Now, let me just explain. There are three kinds of laws, and even in our our uh, form of governance here in America, the same. Civil law is the first. Civil law is national law. It's the law that governs a culture. Civil laws can be very specific to a culture. If you were living in West Africa and you did, most people didn't own a, a car, like in Burkina Faso where the Wheatons are missionaries. Most people don't have a car. They might have a moped. Most people don't have a, that. They might have a bike. So, so rules and, and freeways and those kind of laws, they don't mean anything, right? They have no meaning there. They have different kinds of laws for different cultures. Civil laws are about property, slavery in the Bible, how you could perjure yourself or, or witness falsely in front of a court of law, the governance of that nation. It, it sounds kind of bizarre, but... For example, in chapter 23, there's one of these laws that says you cannot cook a goat in its mother's milk. And you might go, you know, your mind might explode thinking about that. But it's a cultural law. It's a civil law that they had in this period of time in Mesopotamia. It's hard for us to even understand or define it. I mean, I could stand here all night and try to define that, but I don't think I could ever understand it. I, we, we don't live in this specific culture so it's very hard. In Leviticus, uh, we're studying that on Sunday night. So that gives us a little insight. If you're coming on Sunday night, you'll understand a little bit more. But in Le Leviticus chapter 11, there's a whole list of foods that were forbidden. They're known as foods that are unclean to the Jew. There's a whole list. Again, some of those issues, and we've been looking at those for the last few weeks, have to do with cleanliness or health of the people. Others were were very specific about how the sacrifices were done and who was to eat the certain portions, never the blood. The blood was sacrificed. The blood was, was sprinkled for the sins of the people. But then the other portions of the sacrifice were used. Some of it was burnt. Some of it was used. Some of it was, was given to the priest. There was different laws. But these civil laws are cultural. They have to do with the culture of the time. And, uh, and really... Uh, the broader point here is that every society has its own specific laws for their culture. Our problem is interpreting them as hard because we didn't live there and, and all that kind of thing. So here in chapter 21, these first 11 verses are about slavery. Now, if in your mind you hear slavery and to you it's your ears perk up and you think instantly of the 1700s in America, you have to kind of set that aside. Can you just set that aside? Because when you look at the nations and the world in general, slavery is, has always been here. It didn't start here. That, that, that argument, you'll hear it a lot. You know, it's how bad America is. Well, it didn't start here. Slavery did not start in America. Slavery has been part of the world uh, uh, governance for years and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years, slavery. So this section of Scripture does not condone it. In Moses' day, it was part of the nations, all the nations, Mesopotamia, Samaria, 
Egypt, they all had slaves. God's people were enslaved, as you recall, right? And God delivered them out of that slavery for his own, own people. But the, the important point is to understand that slavery was a part of. So why doesn't God come in right away and abolish slavery? Because he's, he is um, calling out his special people. They are a minority in the world of nations, and he has called them to a different standard. And part of that different standard is the way they treat slaves, okay? So he doesn't abolish it, but the slaves that were in Israel were treated miles better than the slaves in the surrounding nations, as you will see. We'll look at some of that uh, in the text tonight. But again, all of these laws... Um, are the ones in these first 11 verses that you'll hear liberal professors in uh, common schools and universities today. They'll say, oh, you Christians, you're into slavery. See, your God's a God of slavery. They'll quote this. Like, look at, real quick, look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. What kind of God do you serve if they should kill their you, you, you're told, you're ordered to kill your parents. And in verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, if he's found in his hand, shall be put to death. And he who curses his father or mother shall be put to death. And then down in verse 14 of chapter uh, 31, you, I'm, you don't have to turn there, but you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore it's holy, and if you don't, you're put to death. So you look at these laws and you go, see, uh, there'll be the liberals that'll say, you Christians, you, you, you're into slavery and you kill, each, you kill your kids. I mean, they'll take a verse like that. Well, they take it out of context, obviously. How many of you as Christian parents have killed your kids lately? Lately, have you done that? It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's not even an argument that we should entertain. But that's the kind of bizarre laws. They're cultural, they're civil, and they were for this specific culture. Now, we've got some bizarre laws, real quick, and they're on the books, and you read about them. You can check this. You can snoop or Google whatever you're into, but Pennsylvania, any motorist driving in Pennsylvania along a country road at night must stop every mile and send up a rocket signal. <laughs> now, obviously, that was a cultural law that was before roads, and right? In Texas, you can be legally married by introducing a person as your wife or husband public in public three times. It makes you legally married if you do it three times in a row. I mean, it's ridiculous. In California, if liberal politicians get their ways, you're going to go to jail if you have a straw, if you have a straw, right? I mean, it's just stupid, right? Stupid. But these are civil laws, and my point is that civil laws change with changing times in different cultures. Secondly, in Exodus, we have ceremonial laws. These laws fill a symbolic action. All the ceremonial laws and laws about feasts, they had a, a function, God had a purpose for them, but the Jews were required to do these, and we'll see at the end of chapter 23, uh, the feasts. We're going to look at three feasts real quick. Again, they're ceremonial laws, uh, sacrifices, um, the feasts, all of those kinds of things, they were to help the people understand that sin was very costly. National sin, personal sin, 
family sin. There were different offerings for that sin, and it was always the death of the animal in exchange for the forgiveness, right? That's, they all pointed to Jesus, by the way, right? Jesus and his death, we get forgiveness by putting our faith in his finished work on the cross. So all of these laws, the civil law and even ceremonial law, they had a purpose. God had a purpose for these specific people. In fact, it's the Apostle Paul who says this. This is a, a great verse here. We're way beyond civil law. We're at ceremonial law at this point in time. Now we have a scripture, Colossians. There it is right there. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. Ceremonial laws were all a shadow. They, they shadowed or they foretold or they pointed to Jesus Christ. We, we hear that. We, I, I've shared that with you over and over. Uh, from Leviticus, we see it. We see it here in Exodus as well. Jesus made that perfect and final sacrifice for sin. So we don't need ceremonies or rituals. Why don't we do it today? Because we don't need them. They're unneeded. When Jesus came and died, on the, they were all abolished because in Christ we have everything. They were all a shadow. A lot of people get hooked on that. The emergent church, they love candles and incense and, and ceremony. And, oh, it makes them feel so religious. Anything that makes you feel religious has got to be bad, Christian. We walk by faith and the truth of God's word. We have a foundation in the Bible. We don't need candles and ceremony and all that stuff. Ceremonial laws are interesting, but in the scriptures, they all point to Jesus. So civil laws, ceremonial laws. Number three, moral, moral laws. Now these laws, again, they are written to reveal the heart of God. They're revealing to us what he expects in you and I as people. And aren't you glad that we have moral law? I'm so grateful. Without moral law, you have anarchy. Without moral law, you have injustice. But these principles speak of God's justice and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his love. So moral law is really good. Guidelines for marriage. Guidelines for appropriate uh, sexual relationships are in that's part of God's moral law. Capital punishment, human dignity, all of these things are explained in God's moral law. The question is then, how do we know the difference between moral, civil, or ceremonial law? And here is the most important point for you and I at this point in the study. It's if the law or principle is affirmed by the New Testament, if Jesus spoke it in the Gospels, if Paul taught it in the epistles, if that happened, then you know it's a moral law that you should stand up to. That's a standard of God. If it's not repeated, most of the time it's a ceremonial law, something that was done away with with the death resurrection, and rule of Christ. So that's how you kind of see the different. Also, the early church, what did they practice in Acts chapter 2? They broke bread, they fellowshiped together, they met and they sang hymns. There's, there's specific things that the early church did. So we as a church do those same things because we're part of the early church, but not 
ceremonial law of the Jew or the civil law of the people, the children of Israel, like we're going to read tonight. So that's how you kind of discern the difference. Now, we begin chapter 21 with these various laws that bring the nation together and the rights of the slave. Let's, let's just rip through this. Verse 1, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons and daughters, the wife of, and her children shall be her masters. That's kind of an interesting twist there, right? Because the women belong to the master, and the master gave it to the slave. So now, there's, although there's union, the, she's still the slave of the master, but only for six years, right? Six years. And then the seventh year, they're to let free. In every other culture, that, that you were a slave for life. You were never let go. You had no identity on your own. But in God's culture, you have slaves that have identity. You can only keep a slave for six years. Seventh year, they go free. Verse 6, then his master shall bring him to the judges. Uh, wait a minute. But if the servant plainly says, verse 5, I love my master, my wife and my children. I, I don't want to go free on the sixth year. He doesn't want to be set free. He likes his master. He likes his job. He likes serving in that household. If, he, if that's what he wants, then his master, verse 6, shall bring him to the judges. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and the master shall pierce his ear with an awl. So he goes to the door, sticks his ear, you know. You thought you were the first one that got one of those big things in your ear. No, this is the doulos. This is the law of the doulos in the Bible, and this meant that they were a servant by choice. The doulos is a, is a really wonderful con uh, a place to be for a Christian. I, I love that that thought throughout the Bible in the New Testament, we become the doulos or the slave. When you see the word slave in the New Testament, it's the Greek doulos, and it means the volunteer slave indicated with this you know, hole in your ear, dink, and everybody knows that you chose to be a slave. How come you've been a slave there for 14 years? Oh, oh, you're doulos. You chose to do that. We, as New Testament believers, have chosen to believe in Jesus and submit and become his slave of Christ. Do you know that you're a slave of Christ? You're a, you're a soldier in the army of God. You're a slave of Jesus Christ. I love those terms. I, I love that. He's, Jesus is my master. I'm his slave. I'm to be obedient to whatever he wants. But that piercing of his ear there means you're a volunteer slave. Paul says in Galatians 3, look at this verse here behind me on the screen. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. That's that word doulos. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. That's how, you, that's how you're seen by God. You're one in Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. I love the fact we have different churches, different names, different denominations, but we are one body of Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Verse, uh, where was a seven? And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to him, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has 
betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, verse 10, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, her marriage rights. Isn't that interesting? Notice how God immediately with these people, with the children of Israel, has elevated a woman to a place of worth. Every other culture, and you can read about them, ancient history, women were nothing. They were owned by the man. But here you can already see that God has elevated a woman and given her value, given her worth. If he does not do uh, these things for her, then she shall go free without paying any money. Again, you might say, well, Pastor Lee, how come God just didn't abolish slavery altogether? Uh, I don't know. You'll have to ask him. I believe it has something to do with the whole world. That's what the world's economy ran on. That's what it did. But God is changing his people and their view of slavery and uh, for the good, obviously, here. Now we have laws concerning capital punishment in verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. Now, we're talking about someone that's, that's committed ma- manslaughter with, with contempt, with deceit, with, with a purpose, as, as opposed to, um, uh, well, it would be premeditated, right? He, he's, he's premeditating, I'm going to lie in wait, I'm going to get this, I'm going to jump them, I'm going to kill them. So in that case, notice, This person that did not do that, God provides a place of safety, a place of refuge. In the Old Testament, it's called the city of refuge. There were these places where you could go. If if, uh, you were Hatfield and they were McCoy and you killed a Hatfield and you could run to the, and they couldn't kill you, you could find safety. Uh, Whether it was your fault or their fault or anybody's fault, and you could find adjudication there and safety there. There were places, cities of refuge. That's what he's talking about here. So God, again, is establishing a governance for his people. He's trying to make it fair for people that, that didn't kill somebody intentionally, but somebody died in their presence, and uh, they had someplace to go. Verse 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. There's capital punishment. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So some kid that's out of control, he's beating on his parents. You know, his parents are getting old and the kid's getting stronger and stronger as a youth and he's beating his parents up. There's the death penalty. Verse 17, and he who curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist, WWA, whatever that is, and he does not die but is confined to his bed. So you, you strike somebody so hard that it knocks him unconscious, but it, it, it disables him in some way. If he rises again, verse 19, and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. So you, you, you don't, you're not under capital punishment or capital law in that case. He shall only pay for the loss of time and shall provide for him until he's healed. So you're responsible to pay for him and his family because you hit him. You hit him with a rock accidentally. You hit him with your fist because you were mad. But he didn't die, so you, you're, you, don't, you, you don't lose your life as a result. You just pay for this guy and, and provide for him. 
Uh, verse 20, and if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. So there's, that's an interesting one, too, for the slave. But again, God has already elevated his slave to a place that the other surrounding nations had never done. He's already elevated their, the dignity of their lives. And uh, even though it's hard for us to understand, this is a cultural thing. Remember, I, that's why I went to that long introduction. We can't understand all of these laws. We weren't there. We, I didn't live in, you know, 1500 B.C., when these laws were given, but they have some impact or implication in these laws that we just don't quite understand. A slave owner could put a slave to death without any punishment, but he had to, if, if he killed him instantly, that was one thing, but if he died a few day, days later, it's just hard to understand. Now we have laws concerning injuries, verse 22. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, Yet no harm follows. He shall be punished according to the woman's husband opposes on him. With much zeal and many poundings, I might add, if that was my wife. And then verse 23, if anyone harm, or if any harm follows, then you shall give life for a life. So the, the punishment was equal to the crime. You'll see that again and again in the Old Testament. This is a great place for a parenting tip. Parents. You never want to punish your children beyond the crime. If a baby spills milk, is that a crime? Does that deserve swatting, slapping, dousing them in the face with a cup of milk? I mean, come on, that's, that's pretty abusive. The penalty, you know, must age appropriate and with that child. You know, when they're eight years old and they look at you and they say, up yours, dad, well, maybe they need a little paddle of instruction. But when they're really little, you have to be careful. But you'll see in the scriptures all the time that the penalty always is never over or never under. It's, it's equal to. We're going to see that here as we move through this. But again, the laws of, of retribution here, that's what we're kind of looking at. Man's natural desire for vengeance will take over. And we, but they did this to me. They should get 50,000 years in prison, you know, like, like you're really, like they're going to live through it or whatever. They, they should get whipped by 50, you know, stripes that'll kill a normal person instead of two. You know, we want vengeance. And so God wants equality. He wants fairness in the law. Again, our tendency is to do more against the offending party. Somebody bumps in your car, you want to get out and, and beat him up and throw him into San Quentin, you know. And uh, God is just, it's very just. And the principle here can, should be applied to our form of government and even our legal system where we assess a fair uh, burden, a fair uh, judgment on someone. You've heard a lot about tort reform. Tort is a word that just means, all it means is an old English word for civil law. And in our country, we have lawyers that have gone so crazy. They sue everybody for everything. You can't buy anything. The cost of goods goes way up because of all the lawsuits, right? So tort reform is, you know, it kind of gives limits to some of those things. Now, everybody has a different view of that, and you might have a political view. I'm not trying to be political. 
I'm just trying to say that, that Torah reform, in my opinion, is good. It kind of caps the award given to somebody that takes you to court. Lawyers who run Washington don't want that, by the way. I mean, think about that. Why don't we get Torah reform? Why? Because lawyers make bank, right? They make bank on that stuff. That's why that doesn't go anywhere, by the way. Now, God's way to deal fairly with any lawbreaker we see in verse 24. Here it is. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So you got a serve, you got a slave, and you mistreat him. You sock him in the eye and they go blind. Free. You hit him in the mouth and they lose a tooth. That's your free ticket. Man, I, I wonder if any of the slaves would coax their master and try to get him to slug them, you know, so they could get, up, get out of their commitment of being a slave before six years were up. But anyway, th- it really just shows you that God is fair. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's the justice system that he wants his people, Israel, to grow up under. God's ways are best. They're equal, equal justice under the law. Now, here we have the responsibility of of an owner here, verse 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tends to thrust with its horn in times past, if this animal has killed somebody else and the owner knows it and he has not kept it confined, so it killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and the owner shall be put to death too. I mean, that's fair, right? I I was reading and I was thinking about dog owners, dog owners that that don't control their pets, you know, and they they race out and bite somebody and say, oh, this is my little fight. Oh, I love my little dog. Just bit somebody. I mean, come on. Pastor Lee, you're getting in my space. Get out of my space right now. <laughs> Verse 30, if there is, if there is Im- imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life whatever is imposed on him. Whatever it has gored a son uh, or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. And if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in, why, why would a guy dig a hole? Water, right? They're going to dig a hole for water. They've got a water, so they're going to dig a well. Or maybe they would dig a well to, hold, to keep animals that they wanted to keep. But you didn't dig a hole and just leave it, you know, so somebody walking along some night would fall in it and die. That's what this is is about here. If a man's ox hurts another, verse 35, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past and its owners not kept it confirmed or fined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So there's some laws there for the owner of an animal that's out of control or a hole that you dug or whatever. Laws for restitution in chapter 22. Again, the first four verses deal with restitution for someone that steals a sheep. If a man steals an ox or sheep and then slaughters or sells it, he's going to have to restore the person that he stole it from five times or five oxen 
or an ox or four sheep for a sheep. So he's going to have to restore five times over here. Again, punishment equal to the crime, but not death, just restitution. That's what is, uh, the, the Bible is talking about. Verse 5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's fields, he shall make restitution for the beast of his own field and the beast of his own vineyard. So you were to respect the property of someone else. Again, these laws are fair. They're just. Um, I, when I read this, I, I, yes, that's right. That's the way it should be, you know, respecting one another's property. And then um, the men that are held responsible for the way their animals, you know, act. Verse, verse 9, for any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, for any kind of lost thing, which another claims to be his. The cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall pay double his neighbor. So somebody steals or somebody loses something. You're walking through a field and you see, wow, look, at there's a plow laying there. Hmm, I'm going to pick that up. You're on the freeway. Somebody's iPhone's on the freeway. Hey, I found an iPhone. Praise God, it's mine. Well, not really. And if somebody found out or, you know, you could go and say, wait, that's my phone or that's my plow or that's my rake. This was fair for these people. They could go to the judge. We have this in, in our minds. Finders what? Right? That's what we think. We think that, but that's not God's law. If you pick something up and it's not yours, it's not yours. It belongs to somebody else. God doesn't like people that steal. The law that we read in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, right? steal. This is elaborating that law. That's what this whole set is all about, this whole section, 21, 2, and 3. So that's why I'm kind of busting through these so that you get the idea. But verse 12, if in fact it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. So restitution is God's plan, making sure the owner of the iPhone or whatever it is gets back. I had my car broken into a couple of years ago. I had just uh, gotten back into flying. I had two expensive headsets for flying in there. I had an iPad that I used for four flight. I had all this stuff in my flight bag, and I left it in the car that night. And I came out the next day after an hour coming down to church, and guess what was gone? I mean, that bag had some expensive stuff in it. Guess who was mad? I was mad. You know, I was the doink that left it out in the car with a car unlocked in front of my house. I mean, it was really my fault. But, but someone took my stuff. And the most important, the most valuable thing, I had two logbooks from 1979, all my flights, that I really need for my FAA license. I, I kind of went around and did some other things with an instructor to get my current certificate. But that bummed me out more than anything else. My logbooks are gone. But I, was, I still, every day, I think, somebody's going to mail that to me. God's going to put, he's going to put some conviction in somebody. They're going to find that logbook, and they're going to, because it had my address and my, my medical, all my documents are in there, except for my license, which I have in my pocket. I never left that in there. But what a bummer when somebody takes your stuff, right? So here's some laws that make sure that we're fair and we treat others with that same uh, responsibility that we respect someone else's property. Now, beginning here in verse 16, we have moral and financial laws. Verse 16, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, 
he shall surely pay the bride price for her, the dowry, to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. So he's owed that money. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. That's an interesting one that's just kind of thrown in here. And then verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Wow, bestiality. And he who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. So here's some moral laws. I mentioned it, moral laws. There they are. There, we won't go straightforward enough. Verse 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child if you afflict them in any way. And they cry at all to me. I'm going to hear their cry. You're going to answer to me. I love that one. If you afflict them in any way and they cry to me, you'll answer to me. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with a sword. <laughs> your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Wow. God sees. God watches. God holds us accountable. I love that. The widow and the fatherless, God loves. Be careful the way you treat the widow. Why? Because these are the most vulnerable people in a society. God cares for them. He he wants to protect them and provide for them. So he threatens with a death penalty. Don't you dare mess with these people. I love God's word there. So we have moral law. And then notice the finance law here in verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Right on. You don't have money to pay the interest. You borrow money and then just pay back the money. You don't own interest at all. God required this interest-free loan for who? For who? For the poor. God always cares about the poor, the downtrodden. And then we have respect for rulers. Look at verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people, irregardless of your like or dislike for Obama or Trump. Here's the rule. You shall not curse the ruler of your people. Honestly, as believers, we need to pray for our president. We need to pray for those leaders, especially the ones that are so bizarre and throw these weird laws. We, we need to be on our knees for them. Verse 29, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn your sons, you shall give to me. Notice that. God requires the first fruits of everything. In other words, you don't own anything, Christian. I, I mentioned this the other day in our Bible study, but you really don't own anything. God owns it all. You're a steward of whatever you have, whatever you have in your garage. You're a steward of that. What are you doing with it? And have you given the first fruits to God? Because that's what God requires. It's a way of recognizing, Lord, this, is, this all belongs to you. The first of the month, you know, that writing your tithe check or giving to the Lord, that's the Lord's. It's not yours. And you're acknowledging right away, man, I just got this check, this paycheck, this lump of money, but I'm going to acknowledge God first. That's what this is, the, the law of the first fruits. Very, very important, I believe, in the life of the believer. Now, chapter 23, how are we doing? Oh, good. 
Chapter 23, laws promoting justice. Verse 1, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand on uh, with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in a dispute. So again, perjury is forbidden, lying, fa bearing false witness. So this is, again, elaborating on false. What is it to be a false witness? He's elaborating. Don't do these specific things. Perjure yourself, false report, unrighteous witness. Deuteronomy 19, God requires two or three witnesses to convict a murderer. You have to have two or three. If there weren't any witnesses, you could not perform capital punishment ever. We have that same law. You're, you're adjudicated in a, in a room with 12 of your peers. They're the ones that listen to the case. They're the ones that give final judgment on the case. In this instance here, two or three witnesses. And God wants our, his witnesses to be truthful and honest. Now, verses 4 through 9 are laws promoting kindness and civil conduct. Very interesting. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him like a stray dog. You know, just, oh, that's, that's Lily's dog from down the street. You know, let's go get little Fofo and take him back over to Lily. That's really what that is. Kindness. Think about that. God's concerned about your little pet, you know. In this case, it was an ox, but, but you know what I'm saying. God is very concerned about these things. These are his new people. He's giving them all these new laws. And then verse 8, don't take bribes. Verse 9, don't oppress your neighbor. And then beginning verse 10, we have the Sabbath principle here. And I've used that word purposefully, principle. Notice verse 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and life follow, that the poor of your people may eat. Why was Israel required to allow one year for the land to rest? So the poor could have some place to go and eat. This was God's welfare system. Think about it. You still didn't get free. You had to go out and work for it and get it. But this was God's way. And the reason that, you know, if, if you're in a prophecy, you understand the 490 years, was it 400? Yes, 490 years, and all the years that the Israel was taken in captivity, and then there's the 70 years, and then the last seven years, and that whole thing was because the people in Israel rejected this law of letting their land go fallow. So God held them accountable to that. Very interesting when you read that. But God has a purpose and plan for everything. And in this case, there was this time for the land to be fallow so that people that were poor could have food. Verse 12, six days you shall do work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox, your donkey may rest, your son, your female servant, and stranger may be refreshed. Again, I went to detail when I taught this commandment Keep the Sabbath holy. The Sabbath day, was, is, it's a pattern of rhythm, a cycle for you. God made it for you so that you could rest. We all need rest. When you work, 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 you'll burn. You need a rest. Unless you're on 
permanent rest, like retirement. Some people, you know, are you, you're smiling, I know. That's permanent rest, right? Wouldn't you say? The rest of us have to go to work. They get permanent rest. Take naps all day. <laughs> I know you guys don't do that. I'm just, just playing with you. But this Sabbath day, very important. Um, why is the Sabbath day not uh, something that we in the New Testament church hold to? Well, we really do. We're supposed to, a Sabbath day, but not a specific Sabbath day. The Sabbatarians believe it's on Saturday, and if you don't do it, then you're probably not born again or you're not saved or whatever. It's really interesting. Not all of them believe that, but many of them do. We just have to be careful that we don't allow that person to put their legalism on us. We're free in Christ, but listen, with your freedom comes that responsibility. You need to take a Sabbath day. You need a day of rest to recoup and refresh. All of those things were fulfilled in Christ. I've read this verse over and over. Here it is again, Colossians 2. Let no one judge you in food or drink regarding festival and new moons. So here it is, Sabbaths. All of those things were shadows. Even the Sabbath day was a shadow of thing to come. But the substance is of Christ. They all pointed to Jesus Christ. Now, here at the middle portion of the end of this chapter here, we have three national feasts. These were laws. These were required of the Jewish people. Verse 14, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. Three main feasts. The first one, verse 15, the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you. Why? Because you came out of Egypt and you walked in the desert. I want you to remember that. Verse 16, the feast of harvest or first fruits. So after you yield a great crop, you're to give that back to the Lord, saying, Lord, thank you. Just like we give tithe to the Lord you know, when we get paid. They were to acknowledge God and his goodness and his faithfulness in their life, the feast of harvest. And then there at the end of verse 16, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gather, gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. So three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord. Unleavened bread, harvest, and ingatherings. Those were the three main feasts. Now we're going to go into detail in these, but not tonight. That's a Sunday night Levitical thing. We're going to get there in Leviticus. We'll get real detailed about those things. But So you've got to come Sunday night to get that. Verse 18 and 19, first fruit offerings again. Um, and the interesting thing about that when you read it, you can read it as I'm talking, but the interesting thing is that blood and leaven, there's the two there, they were to keep separate. They always kept the blood and the leaven separate. The atoning blood could never be part of touching the leaven. Why? Leaven represents what? Sin. So you never have blood and leaven together. Beginning of verse 20, and we finish this little section here, it explains the Ten Commandments. Really kind of gives us this, this whole section we've read, these, these two and a half chapters we've read are an explanation of the Ten Commandments here. And uh, now we see a picture of Christ here emerge right at the end. Verse 20, we have the angel of protection. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I prepared. Beware of him, 
Obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Now, I believe this angel of the Lord here is Jesus. And I'll give you a couple of reasons here why I believe that. Notice it's the angel, verse 20, not created. This is the angel that God sends. So this angel comes from God. And then verse 21, my name is in him. We know Michael the archangel. We know these other angels that have names. But this angel doesn't have a name, which is really interesting. My name is in him. Now think about this really quick. Jesus was the name. It's the Latin form of the Jewish Joshua or Yeshua. Yeshua was Christ's name. Yeshua. They didn't say Jesus. Jesus, where's Jesus? It was Yeshua was his name. Yeshua, there is a wonderful name, or Joshua, the Lord saves. The Lord is my salvation. So God is saying, I'm going to give you this angel, and he's going to have my name, and here we have Jesus, and he has the name Joshua or Yeshua. And so I believe this angel of protection is pointing back to the Lord. And then notice the blessings of obeying the angel here. Verse 22, if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel, I will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, Hittites, Parasites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, and I'm going to cut them off. So don't worry about these people as you go into Canaan, all these different cultures. If you obey my voice, I will protect you. If you listen to my angel, and I, it just makes me want to listen to the words of Jesus Christ. You listen to the words of Jesus Christ, you'll be protected. It's when you step outside of those boundaries, when you step outside away from the word of God. And the New Testament voice of the Lord that's so clear, Matthew 4, 5, and 6. Those are the verses that I love to read when I feel like I haven't heard the Lord, haven't heard the Lord, I, I go to Matthew. And I, I love to read that section. I just hear his voice. Blessed, blessed, blessed are those who. I love that section. So listen to the voice of the angel. Hear the, the, the blessings to the obedient here. Number one, protection. God's going to fight for them. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods. When you go to another nation, do not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works. Reminds me of Daniel. But you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Don't put up with that stuff in the land. The question is, did the children of Israel do that when they got to Canaan? Did they do that? They didn't do it. They, they didn't obey here. And that's why they got judged by God. That's why they were taken into captivity. They had all kinds of problems because they didn't obey these laws. Verse 25, so you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. These are all beautiful promises for those that are obedient. In the Old Testament, same are true in the New Testament. You obey the, the word of God. Obey the truth of the New Testament, not only the principles of the church, meaning the established church, the, 
the, the teachings of Paul and the epistles? What should a church be? What should it do? Should it do what you feel like it should do, or should it do what the church did in the book of Acts? We need to be really careful to be doing those things. And you could say, well, you don't do this, Pastor Lee, at this church, or you don't do that. And there are some things that I would say, yeah, I, I struggle with some of those things. But we do the best we can. We do the best we can to take the word of God and apply it to our church. You should do the same thing. Take the laws of God and apply them to your life. And as you do it, look at these beautiful promises of obedience here. Verse 27, I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all peoples to whom you come. Now, this is for the children of Israel. They're going into Canaan, right? So God is assuring them that he's going to take care of them. I'll make all your enemies turn their back to you. And I will send hornets before you and shall drive out the Hivites and Canaanites and Hittites from before you. Verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year. And this is an interesting one. Lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. So God's saying, I'm not going to give you an overnight victory, a radical quick fix, because you wouldn't know what to do. So you're going to have to go in there and trust me. You've got to trust me as I move things around, as I take care of people, as I deal with these things. You just be obedient to me. That's what he's saying here. Verse, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, verse 30, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and inherit the land, and I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea, Philistia which is the Mediterranean there, and from the desert to the river, Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So here, there you have it. We got through those three chapters. But very interesting in how we had Ten Commandments and then we had the explanation or the covenant there, the explanation of those laws. And not a lot of application for us because these laws were specific. They were civil, moral. Uh, these ceremonial laws were specific for the children of Israel and their time. But here's, really quick, I'll throw these at you real quick. So what, the purpose, number one, the law restrains sin. Number two, the law reveals God's heart. You see God's heart and his care of the widow and the, the, the downtrodden and the poor. And number three, the law makes us aware of our sin. That's what the law was for. It wasn't made to save you. It was a, it was, the law was a, a tutor. The law was a spotlight. The law was there to show you that you're a sinner and that without Christ, you cannot be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight, this large portion of scripture that we made it through. Lord, there's truth here uh, specifically for your people, but you've recorded it for our benefit too. And as we've read it, Lord, I'm sure that there are things here that we can apply, things that we can see and understand. And I pray, Lord, for your people that as we come to study the word Lord, that you would continue to reveal your heart to us. The truth, Lord, that you care for people, that you're a, a God that's just and true, and you want your people, you want us to be just and true. 
that you care about the poor and the widows, and you want us to care about them too. The law reveals who you are, and we thank you. I'm just grateful that the law pointed me to my sinful heart and that without you, I could not have salvation. Your law ultimately led me to your son, Father. And Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for all that you've done, the reason you came to deliver me, to deliver sinners by faith, to deliver us, Lord, as we receive that free gift of eternal life and are born into the family of God. Lord, may we as your children just rejoice over that truth. And may we live differently as a result, just as you called these children of Israel to live different than the nations around. Lord, may we be governed by your righteous ways. In Jesus we pray. Amen.